Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is the Lurus Rugby Podcast, and we have a special guest today. Uh, Aaron Castro from Earful Dirt Podcast is joining us today. Aaron, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, doing pretty good. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it's impressively hot uh, out here in Arizona. Actually, today is a very nice day. Uh, it was... I want to say it was 85 when I went for my run this morning, but it was uh, a Canadian podcast Celsius. Yeah, Celsius. Celsius. What's Celsius? I, what is that like? 22. I, oh, that's not bad. That's nice. You know, Imperial got us to the moon. So <laughs> just, just. I've never heard someone. I, I have, I have an American uncle who lives down in Florida, and I've never heard him use that as a argument point. And I <laughs> think I'm gonna hold it against him. I think I'm gonna use that. Next time he's trying to tell me the weather. Imperial got us to the moon. Although I want to say Imperial definitely lost like, like a Mars probe, something like that. We, we like launched something and they, uh, they were like, it like completely overshot and, uh, hit something on the, like when it, so there you go. Or something. So, I mean, like for the most part, I, I know how to do metric except in, um, in Senate Celsius or I don't do any of that. <laughs> well, we appreciate you trying at least. Uh, so we're going to get started. And uh, the first thing that uh, we're going to start doing with some of our guests is uh, we want to know, how did you get started in rugby, Aaron? Um, I, I guess the, the short story, it goes back to 2013, but I want to say 2004, sophomore in high school, uh, we did it. I did some other project for our English project, but one of the guys in my class, uh, he wanted to do rugby because he was half, half English and there was no rugby clubs where we lived. And like, there still isn't any rugby clubs where we live, but he got, you know, 30 guys together and we learned how to play 15s from this guy who had, I guess, been a professional in England at some point uh, in early professionalism and now lived in California. And we were, we, didn't toy with the idea of trying to get a club together. Um, we tried, but uh, you know, you run into those things called sports seasons that uh, you just hit. And uh, you know, every, we all went our separate ways and I went and played spring football. This guy went and swam, you know, guys played baseball, all that BS. Um, we had a club in college. I didn't play there, but uh, in 2009 um, I was at SM Saint-Cyr or the French military Academy. And we went into Ren one time with a bunch of Sanders cadets that had come down for some competition, uh, that went down. And, um, I remember the first, I, I had no awareness of the U S national team at this point, by the way, like no, no clue. And I watched Wales. It was Wales. I want to say it was Wales. Ireland maybe was the first game I saw in a pub drunk off my butt. Uh, in, in 2009, and uh, just the way they played the defense that uh, Gatlin had at the time was amazing, although offensively, uh, this is, you know, I knew, I just watched, I didn't know what was going on really, and I watched how they played, and if, you know, defensively, they like Wales is all, has been a great team. Attacking-wise, eh, you, you know, some years they're good, like this last year, they were very good, um, but many years they're not. Uh, so, but, uh, I really fell in love, fell in love with Wales at in 2009. And although I'm not in love with Wales now, um, <laughs> but, uh, so that's sort of the start. And then in 2013, um, 
I, I was in the army at the time and was looking for a club. I was at Fort Knox and the closest club was uh, a long drive into Louisville. I lived on the South side of Fort Knox and really um, if I wanted to play rugby where I chose to live was a really bad idea. But um, then I, so was going to try and play with that club. Didn't. And then there was, I moved to El Paso for, for, and with my unit shutting down, joined the El Paso Scorpions, played with them for a year and change. And then the army team, Fort Bliss Warriors stood up. Although for, for some reason I was playing wing um, <laughs> with the El Paso Scorpions. I am, I am, well, it seems to be where they put like the it, like they put the newer. They think player. that it doesn't take coaching to play wing. Apparently, yeah, I don't know, but uh, I joined the Four Plus Warriors. Um, that club no longer exists. It kind of lived the the army life of I guess post global war on terror clubs, and where some guys are able to get it together, get all the things done, and you'll last for three years, and then the guys that they're going to hand it off to. Um, are either PCSing or leaving the army, like the three guys that we're going to try and hand it off to, which is myself, a guy who's now at Fort Lewis, and uh, another guy uh, who I forget. I forget where he went, but basically, um, you know, that's that's army clubs. They'll they'll stick around for three, maybe four years, and then sort of disintegrate right now, which kind of sucks. Um, yeah, because army rugby, and I'm sure forces rugby in Canada before the GWAT as well was, was really like a huge thing, sort of like it is still in the, in the UK. But, um, and then I moved to Arizona and played a little bit with Phoenix rugby club, but uh, I, I guess life and then getting hit by a vehicle while cycling um, really got in the way yeah. of uh, getting back on the pitch. And um, some things uh, are, I would I would say I'm letting things get in the way right now, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna get back out there. Um, I'm a hooker by trade. Uh, played hooker for for four years and uh, and love it. Although um, Eric Howard and Ray Barkwell are are all we're all like the same size, right. but I am definitely not an international rugby player. Um, but uh, I just you know it's kind of be like, hey, I could I could be. You know, I'm that size, but no, I, they're faster. I would say even, you know, in his medical retirement, Ray Barkwell is still a much faster and fitter rugby player than I yeah. am. Um, I have a couple of guys that are part of my club that are, uh, they've been playing for the Ontario Blues this summer. And uh, one of the guys was on the academy team for the Arrows when they went down and played um, the All, All Americans in uh, Washington. And, you know, I'm I'm the same height as them, but like they're just built differently. Like they're just like the prototypical prop. So it's I, it's I feel like your pain. Or something. Oh God, yeah. Well, <laughs> one of them's also like an iron worker, so he goes to Toronto and then like just does like hard manual labor, and like he's just like he's so strong. He hits a gym, but then like, he's just got like these like cement hands that like if he like stiff arms you, like you're feeling it like for like a week. The difference between me or you and him is genetics. Like I'm, I'm gonna, like same size, but like under the skin, there is something else going on for them than there is for any of us. Yeah, people. Yeah, um, well, that's awesome, and it, it's it's so watching great. Rugby is fun too, guys. Watching rugby is fun. Too, <laughs> I guess. Um. Well, yeah, and I, the reason why we why I ask, Aaron, is it's so interesting to hear people's stories about rugby. You know, um, you know, yours kind of started through school and then ended up, you know, finding your foothold in the military and eventually your club. 
You know, it, it's it's something that I think rugby is one of those sports where if there's a club in town, you've got a spot to play, and that's always so nice. Um, who was the first rugby player that you you really kind of fell in love to watch? I, I want to say for a long time I had no awareness of the U.S. national team, so none of those guys are really um, the the guys that I sort of look at. Although I went to the same college as Dan Lyles, so I, I try to find the VHS and uh, put in uh, put in the videotape uh, of some classic Dan Lyle games. Um, but uh, guys like. Uh, Richie McCaw, James, um, Sam Warburton, um, and uh, James Haskell because of just uh, – Sam and, and James played a little bit differently than uh, than Richie McCaw did. I would say in between of like the stylistically, Sam Warburton was really in the middle uh, between Richie McCaw and James Haskell. James Haskell is just, just this massive um, high work rate uh, type player and then uh you know richie plays especially now that i understand it more played very hard on the edge like there's if he they say if he didn't play for the all blacks he would have gotten yellow cards out the yin yang and we're talking about one of the sevens in the world that has the lowest yellow card rate for the amount of caps that he has ever played and then sam warburton's i would say sort of like a hybrid a very big work rate guy that also played very hard at the edge when it came to the breakdown, and this is you know sort of why at, at 27 he he retired last year. So, um, but those are the guys that I really sort of fell in love with. Uh, you know, if you go back to uh, I guess 2012 ish, going going all the way back to that, and I think back in 2012, what Sam was like, <laughs> Sam was like 21 at the time. Yeah. So, like that's when I started watching him play. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Like with like with Haskell and Richie McCaw, like I remember those are two guys that, that when I started getting uh, really big into uh, rugby, they were kind of near the end of their careers, and so it, it was always kind of like one of those what ifs. Like you know, I can always go back and watch some of them, but to, you know, to be able to see it in, in time. And uh, Derek, who is someone that you kind of fell in love with when you when you first started watching rugby? To, yeah, I, I think I'll kind of share your sentiments of like the kind of came in a little too late, maybe. Uh, I know uh, when I first started playing rugby in my high school, uh, we my, in my when I was in grade nine, it was the first year our school ever did a rugby team. So you basically ended up with about 25 kids that have never watched a rugby game before. Um, so our coach basically decided to you know, bring everybody into uh, bring everybody into a classroom and just throw throw on some classic games. But um, they would be essentially always be all black games um, for the most part, just because it's like this, and he would just be, this is what it's supposed to look like. Um, and so you guys will never attain this, but this is what it's supposed to look like. But yeah, exactly. uh, there's also the cool thing yeah, about that is there's only at least those games exist, whereas there's probably no tape of like half of Rugby Canada's games. No, no. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's part of it. It's like YouTube was, I think, just becoming a thing at that point, too. Um, so we would just so, but uh, obviously, like, so from that, like a lot of the All Blacks, uh, like Jonah Lomu was a big guy for a lot of people just because that was, that was like the most entertaining highlight reel of any rugby player. Um, a lot of guys got on like Richie McCaw, uh, uh, Dan Carter, like all the big All Black guys that were from like around like 2000 like 2007 to 2010 when we were in high school was like, that was pretty much what my high school team would like watch in like the library and stuff would just be 
everything all blacks uh owen franks brody retallick now uh kieran reed and stuff going forward too it just kind of it's just kind of stuck with it that way as well yeah when i when i was in high school i remember our, our coach brought us into to one of the weight rooms and showed us like clips i don't know how he got them but like clips of like aaron carpenter tackling he's like that's what it's supposed to look like it's not going to look like that on the pitch but if you can attain that as much as possible uh go for it yeah and, if you guys uh, knew what you were doing it would look yeah like <laughs> yeah you know for me it was you know i, I remember I, I remember watching the 2011 world cup and really you know watching some of those guys there i remember when they all had the dyed blonde hair and looked ridiculous and it was hilarious and uh you know i remember and then i remember when i was in university i remember pro rugby starting and i was like this is the best <laughs> thing ever i'm gonna watch the thing and then like i even like submitted a bunch of ideas when like halfway through the season they asked for names i'm like why didn't you do this at the beginning of the season and then oh and then yeah and then became pro rugby this is a disaster but i like you know ray barkwell and phil mckenzie were two guys that i really liked to watch because I mean, you know they're the only, they're one of the, some of the only Canadians in that in that when uh, your when your TV deals on uh, on AOL and yeah and yeah. stops broadcasting at some point. <laughs> Anyways, we're not going to get into that. Uh, we're not open up that can of worms. But this this was a question, uh, Aaron, that I was asked by a few people, and and it's kind of an open ended question. I think that's why so many people asked it where do you see rugby going in North America? You know, a lot of people uh, like to be negative and a lot of people like to, you know, be overly positive about what's happening. So, so where do you see yourself in, in this growth in, for rugby in North America? I think it's real. this is a really complicated question. I could, it's sort of open-ended. I think you guys structurally at the grassroots are significantly better shape. Cause if you go all the way, we, we saw that hole of blue that happened in Nova Scotia. You guys have in a lot of places, I would say what we call varsity rugby, but where you're, you're where you have school club, I mean, school clubs are not school clubs and they're just straight high school teams embedded in, in most of your school systems. Cause I mean, how, how, all the way out in Nova Scotia, you got school rugby. Think about that. Like mm -hmm. there, there is only one state that uh, has um, has high schools. Um, we call them athletic association uh, sponsor rugby, and that's in Massachusetts. And they only have like 30, 30 high schools that are have varsity rugby. Right, and then the rest is uh, you know hodgepodge of of youth club stuff. When it and that's really like sort of. The senior stuff, it, it gets, it, it can get very interesting, and you know, getting into the weeds. But I think at the grassroots, you guys are a bit set up better than we are. Um, but that sort of it, in a lot of ways, that has no, those setups are traditional and have nothing to do with the union because both of our unions are financially a mess. Mm -hmm. the, the real difference between Rugby Canada and USA Rugby right now, and the, and really the only difference is that we're winning. And you're losing. Like we're, we're both in. I mean, as far as I can tell, we're both financially a mess, and it's really hard to grow rugby when you have very little money. Um, yeah. But I think professionally, we're in a good place. Uh, I think knowing some of the stuff um, on when it comes to the major league rugby and and what it's taken to get to this spot, it's a. Uh, 
You know, um, as long as the owners of the teams continually make this a phased investment model and support the grassroots, we can continue to expand uh, both youth and senior rugby and also like development opportunities for youth players um, because down here especially, uh, we don't really have a lot of provincial programs and some of those provincial programs, it just depends on the year, whether they're working, but for the most part, additional development stuff comes from, I mean, if you looked at what the clubs, the youth club system looked like down here compared to the, their, the sports they're competing against. I mean, you know, you have 10 to 12 year olds driving an hour and a half for their nearest rugby match. Yeah. down here that's like it, it, that's what in baseball or basketball or soccer that's what you called we call club soccer because you have local leagues and then you have yeah. the travel leagues and basically rugby isn't there is no localization of rugby for the most part outside of a very very few metropolises i would say that um if you look at los angeles and in socal uh, overall uh even though it's one of the highest density places for youth rugby, um, there is no density in the same town. Um, you are traveling everywhere to play youth rugby. And then to get to, if you want to go higher, if you want to aim higher, you basically rugby down here is, I mean, for some reason the union said it was very cheap for basically a decade and also said that it was the fastest growing youth sport in America when it was the fastest growing youth sport in America one year. And then, yeah. for, then they then they rode that cat for nine more years, <laughs> right? But it, it, if you want to develop as a as, as a rugby athlete, or your parents try to help you develop as a rugby athlete, it becomes very expensive, and it becomes more ex likely more expensive than travel soccer than travel baseball. Like rugby is at the youth level is actually if you're good, if you're a good player, <laughs> is arguably more expensive than any other sport it's competing against. So that's right. on the youth side. Um, but with MLR teams and you increase those development systems and make them more affordable for youth players, um, it, I think overall, holistically, we're in a good place as much as the, uh, as much as the, the unions and subunions are messed up, that because there is a professional league that by all accounts, from what I have seen, um, will stick around. Maybe some of the teams will get sold. Maybe the team, some of the teams will fold. But the people that are entering the league now um, are financially in a different place than the teams that entered the league originally. Yeah, you said a couple of things there that uh, that uh, I, I want to get your opinion about Derek because you know you did live the life of, of uh, rugby player, youth rugby player in, in uh, Ontario. Uh, it is very similar for uh, for us, uh, at least in Ontario, I should say. Uh, I mean, if you're not in Toronto, which uh, I live an hour and 10 minutes away, northeast, it, you still have to do some of those hour-long drives. But I do think that it's, you know, it's a little bit more structured. You know, you've got provincial programs, high school, uh, club, and then, you know, university. And then, and then we have, like, a community college program. So there are opportunities for athletes uh derek do you do you agree with what i'm saying do you think that there it's a little bit more nuanced than that here in canada what do you yeah, think yeah i think you know i think like whenever i mean for for a lot of sports like if you take it out of like the mainstream sports and stuff uh things like like at least up in canada especially like hockey like 
every, every city has a hockey league that's like 10, 15, sometimes 20 teams deep um, for like youth players and stuff as well. Um, but obviously, but even, even in hockey, sometimes depending on where you live, you can actually, you can still get some of those treks. Um, I think for, for rugby in Canada, I think, you know, one of the big things is like, if you want to talk about how to like to grow it and everything is, uh, like, you know, having, uh, we use typically like have like a lot of, we might have a lot of people playing rugby, but once you hit like, you know, say like 20 years old or 22, 23, or whatever it's like people just kind of stop playing at that point yeah. um if you're, but, if you're not playing at the university level or the yeah. college level people stop yeah people stop because like it's, you, it's quite yeah. an expensive sport you know if i i i was lucky enough i was only able i i could do just a two-week membership this year uh mm -hmm. with my local club but it's around like 450 dollars and if you're just coming yeah, out of school at the and senior level, they're, they're at the senior level. I, I had to pay because you have to pay your, you know, USA rugby membership fee and at the senior level. I think there are some clubs that keep it really good. Like they, uh -huh. they hunt and they get sponsorships. And I think the, the last club I was in, um, the, Oh, I guess the club I'm in now, um, maybe it, I'm probably being like hounded by my club secretary and financial <laughs> officer to pay my dues. But, um, it's like a hundred. It was like a hundred and fifty bucks for a new player, and then it was a hundred and it's a hundred and seventy five bucks for, um, for a veteran. I guess so. Once yeah. you've been there for a year, it's that's that's the cheapest mm -hmm. do club dues I've ever I've ever paid, and yeah. that's here in Phoenix in in El Paso with because uh, there was another club I played with here in Phoenix for a little bit, and I was like, I'm out. Um, but uh, in El Paso. I spent, oh, yeah, it was over $300. I think it was like 350 bucks. And, you know, El Paso is like a real city. It's it's like I lived on one end and practice was on the other. And depending yeah. on if I left from work, it would be about 30 minutes. If I had gone home, it would be an hour to drive. So, you know, all the opportunity costs that runs into, right. runs into that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I want to say at the senior level, costs are definitely something that drives people away, but that's sort of part of our, um, I would say North American culture that amateur yeah. athletics has sort of, uh, dried up, but it dried up, a dried up a long time ago. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, that's, you think about any club, any type of club, uh, uh, organizations, you know, there's so many service clubs that are suffering, you know, it, it's, a, it's a pretty common thing across the board, not just in sports for adults. Uh, you know, that social time that, that, that requires you to get out of your house now is becoming less and less. Um, you know what, uh, let's, let's move on guys. Cause we've got a lot to talk about and I've been dreading bringing this up, but we're going to talk about it. The last, the PNC game, Canada versus the U S very, oh, I, very. We're talking about the Fiji, uh, the Fiji, uh, Japan game. No, we're not going to talk about. I haven't caught um, that. I did. I did sort of catch um this. The mud bowl I, game. I, I watched the mud bowl game. Um, so this was bad. So I am an NBC, and I, 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 I know some people over there, and so I, I was like tweeting at them, be like, "Yo, what the f?" Um, where at least where I was in Colorado at the time, and apparently other people were having issues. Um, with NBC Gold loading or NBC Gold, the feed just staying stable. 
and uh, like it wouldn't even load like on my phone right. or on my computer, nada. So I had uh, like hard VPN out and uh, apparently the World Rugby website no, lom- no longer, um, it-, it reads right through VPNs, but YouTube and Twitter, we, we good right now, man. Um, but I had to, a VPN that you pay for, by the way, like this one, right? I, I don't really do use this thing at all. Um, because I, I pay for rugby because that's the only way to get more of it. Right. Um, but I had a hard VPN out and, uh, so went on YouTube, watched the game and it was, so if you go all the way to the beginning and it started to rain, the field was in pretty good condition. Yeah. But if you, about 20 minutes in, because it was raining that much, about 20 minutes in, you you know this field is done like it's like yeah. if they play 60 minutes on this game you're not going to be play, playing on this field for a month if it was in the united states like yeah. we're talking thousands of do- thousands of dollars in damage were done to this yeah. this this field and uh it it was kind of awful i you know to say i know what tonga is going to be like for you I couldn't. I don't even know what Samoa is going to be like this weekend for the U.S. because yeah. it was a lot of eight-man rugby just played in the mud, hold on the ball. Like there was no you. It was just it was disgusting. And uh, I would say Tonga. If you go back to the last PNC, which is how they qualified for the World Cup, they are a very undisciplined team. Uh, I guess they get a little cynical here and there, and and that's sort of what uh, got um, Samoa over is that uh, Tonga committed a, a penalty and they took a yellow, so they played with uh, four. I think they got two yellows in that game. I have to go right. check. Yeah, the they, they got two yellows about ninety seconds apart from each other. Yeah, so th- so they were playing with thirteen on, right? Um, and Samoa is like just as athletic and stuff. So, but, and, and they were able to, they were able to pull it out in one of the, I mean, I played in games like that. Um, yeah. Not a fan. I mean, well, they're fun at the time. They're fun at the time, but like, when you think about it afterwards, they're like, that kind of wasn't great. I think the argument that a lot of people are making is like, yeah, that's great for like club rugby, but this is supposed to be like a world rugby sanctioned event. Level in the world. But uh, you know, at the same time, the world rugby can't control the weather. I mean, and, yeah. and at the same time, they're not going to go to every field and and so you know the, the pitch. And, the pitch before the game was certified by World Rugby for to to go because this was a World Rugby tournament. The issue is, unlike Twickenham, Apia Stadium does not have a next level alien engineer drainage system. Okay. Let's just, because the last game I saw, the last game I saw that was at Twickenham, it was raining that bad, Mm -hmm. but the difference in grass used and the difference in drainage system sort of, it remind the best one that the best game that was in the MLR season that reminds you of this is that Seattle San Diego oh the, the monsoon game monsoon oh, like hurricane game. game yeah where I'm thinking this field is done this field is done like for the next week and they played a game on it and it was perfect maybe they should maybe Samoa needs to call up. Uh, the San Di- University of San Diego groundskeeper. But basically, I have no idea other than to tell you that when you play Tonga, they're undisciplined. 
that's that's good. We just yeah. hopefully we got somebody that can kick then. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I watched a little bit of the Japan Fiji game. Uh, it, it was it was an interesting way. It, Japan did a really good job of of uh, keeping their defense a, a solid line, and you know Fiji's just they're just so well known for just getting that ball out wide and you know offloading it so quickly and. and you really got to give props to Japan for, for what they did defensively. And they really took it to them offensively as well. Like the box kicking that game was very impressive. So I was, I was really impressed by Japan. I hope that they have a really good world cup. I would love to see them. Uh, it makes, makes, it makes some magic. I think I'm one of the only people that like their world cup Jersey. So we'll see. So they, so they don't, I would say they looked bad when they released them, but they yeah, don't they, look that bad in person. They look, unlike, yeah, they look the, good. They look on, good unlike, on. Every, unlike every other Canterbury jersey that has been released for the year, Japan's at least look different. I think the the Canterbury jerseys are fine. I don't like the cut. Like my wife described, is it looks like like a like a workout like a girl's workout shirt with like the <laughs> fabric at the back. Like I, I don't get that part. I don't necessarily think the Canterbury jerseys are ugly. It's just it's a template, and it's just boring. yeah, it's boring. It's every, not every team. Looks so different. the if I went back to the last time the U.S. was supplied by Canterbury, this one is not the worst I've ever seen. Yes, yeah. I've seen like the last time they they were our kit supplier, they used us as like an experiment machine, and it was. Uh, I didn't like anything we wore. Well, no, there was this one. I want to say maybe 2001. It wasn't a World Cup kit. Or no, maybe it was the 2011 World Cup kit. It was red, white, and blue hoops. That is the only kit I liked. Because the rest of them were just some experimental BS. I just yeah. want the U.S. shorts to be like the American flag. <laughs> like the star, like oh, just, yeah. the, the Apollo Creed's. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I like. All right, all right. Okay, all right. so the U.S. versus Canada. So one thing that I found interesting if before we even get into the performance was looking at the performance based on the rosters that the U.S. put out. Uh, and I'm comparing it to the ARC game, which was a much closer game. And, you know, for, in my opinion, and you guys can argue with me, uh, they, their ARC lineup, uh, their front row was much better. Um, and, you know, David Anu, Mighty Joe, and, I mean, Paul Mullen you can toss one way or another. But, you know, they had Ben Landry, Nick Savetta, and, you know, they had Hanko in that game. Um, and then other than that, you know, it was uh, Pauli Lasique was in the match instead of uh, Isofo, Mikey Tio was in, in that game. So, you know, there's a, there was a few guys in the ARC game that – I honestly think that lineup looked a lot more impressive than the one they put out in this last game, and yet they showed up. I, I didn't even I didn't even go back and look at at the rosters. I I didn't even think, but yeah, like up front, I would say that is a that like the type five as a group is much stronger than the type five group uh, that went out. Uh, like just as a combination pairing, because this was basically a whole different combination. And that right. was what, like, I, I had made some comments that it looked experimental uh, because a lot of the combinations were different. The spine was very solid. A bunch of guys that have gotten a bunch of different caps under Gary Gold because with Ajma, with Ajma Ginty on there, like, 
and Sean Davies together. You're talking about, you know, a, a halfback fly half pairing that is like peas in a pod, you yeah. know, uh, uh, peanut butter and jelly. Like they, that was, you know, they've, they've started many games together uh, under Gary and, and previously. So they were, they have that chemistry and then, yeah. you know, so the, the spine was, and then you bring in this Will Hooley character, you know, um, from that has, and uh, so the spine was enough because you had Fawcett, who's this just high work rate guy, uh, Cam Dolan, and uh, uh, you know, at number eight, it was just ready, like as a combination, like the other combos were kind of weird. And I thought it was like, okay, so some of these guys are compete are definitely some of these guys are going to get left behind. Like um, when it comes to Japan and I thought, because, but, um, you know, someone said, Hey, every single one of these players is, is a great defensive player. I ain't valid. Cause I'd seen a lot of these players like come through. Uh, but when I saw the Canada roster outside of Peter Nelson, I was like concerned. I was pretty concerned. Um, in hindsight, mm, well, obviously, you know, um, Gary and Co. Uh, well, they they made me eat my words as they tend to do because they're smarter than me. But it was interesting because I I did speak with Kingsley. I need to get this audio up. Um, I did speak with Kingsley and I did speak with Greg McWilliams, our attack coach. That uh, you know, it, I don't think you guys are going to see too many changes. I, I think that's a. Um, that's a second. That's the next question. So I'll get back to that. But as far as just sort of this game went, I thought roster wise, you guys had a stronger roster up front. And then on the back end, we obviously know that was different. Um, uh, knowing the way that Gary is trying to have us play is sort of, I wouldn't say sort of Southern Hemisphere rugby in a lot of ways, two five eights uh, on the pitch at all times. Uh and we had that with Will Hooley and Aj McGinty, right? And then uh, also sort of with a little bit with Madison Hughes, but I, I'm, I don't, uh, Matt, Madison Hughes is a downgrade from even Will McGee. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think Will McGee and Will Hooley are very similar players in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, unlike Yosefo, who basically showed that he is a world-class um you know, wing center type that we've, you know, I'd see he, he had two caps off the wing before. And I'm like, okay, this guy needs to, needs to stick around and then just hasn't been available. And now I'm wondering, um, is some MLR team going to offer him a contract enough that gets him away from the sevens program that's going to going to Tokyo because he was lights out. Like he, he was, well. He was re- he was really good, and they really liked him in camp. I guess they liked Jamison Fon on the Schultz in camp. Apparently, Reichert Hadding was called into camp uh, after uh, the retirement of Samu Manoa, but uh, he had a knee infection, so he actually. Yeah, that's that's something I was going to ask, and uh, you know, with uh, Nick Savetta's injury, does that open up a spot? Can uh, Hate play lock? I, I don't know what. Uh, well, uh, well, Hate can't play lock right now because no, because of the knee infection. Knee. He had to get his knee drained. Um, oh. You've got so I I saw like we were already in Fiji. I didn't see anyone new that was called up. Um, you've got Greg Peterson, great guy, uh, who 
as far as like if you go towards world-class lock pairings if you went Savetta and Peterson the two giants like that was that was different but I think right now um for this next game we're gonna have Peterson and Landry that's gonna be fine um I need to go back and look to see who our who our fourth lock is but I was surprised that um like David Tamalau wasn't called in or like CC Mahoney wasn't called in guys who were named in the outer squad uh but um, also say Lou Stanfill, like named in the outer squad, but hasn't been called up yet. Uh, Lou Stanfill isn't a, isn't a five and we need a five. So guys, a guy who's not, wasn't named in the outer squad is uh, Matt Jensen, who's six foot eight out of the Warriors. Uh, so a, a tight head jumping lock is, is what you'd be looking, what I would be looking for personally. Right. Um, but, or um, they just call Samu, say, Hey man. Hey, please. Um, you're you're playing in the World Cup. Here's your ticket. Um, yeah. Make sure you're fit, and you know it'll happen. But so, uh, so Derek, what do you think? You know, in terms of you looking at the the Canadian roster, who really? I'm not. We're not going to say disappointed because they, you know all those guys played played hard. But who who is someone that uh, needs to kind of relook relook back at the tape and say, okay, I need to step up my game if I'm going to Japan. You can't, and I, and you can't say everybody. I can't say everybody. Can't uh, say everybody. Uh, you know, I think, I mean, everybody's the answer. Um, you lost uh, forty-seven to nineteen, um, but true. I mean, realistically, if you had to highlight one, why uh, Benoit Piffero, um had a real bad game, um, especially uh, with the lineout throw. Um, there was a lot where obviously the uh, the Americans were able to steal it. Um, there was a handful where he just got flat out penalized for not throwing it straight. Um, I think, you know, what was that stat that came out that it was like Canada was like 43% or something like on their own lineouts, which yeah. is obviously, um, which is, which is obviously just not good enough. Um, I think, you know, uh, um, I think if you like going forward, um, Andrew Quatrin, in my opinion, has to start against Fiji uh, this weekend. I would have Eric Howard coming off the bench too because, you know, it's just one of those things like if yeah. those guys are playing well, like it might that – with how – like with that game, it might be tough for Piffero to come back in the lineup after that. Yeah. Well, it's it's, it's hard because, you know, there's no word on it was how if Howard was injured or if they just want to see what Piffero and Quatrin could do or – so so I, I agree with you. I think that there needs to be – a change there and you know it's hard to kind of i think we we've agreed that you know patrick parfait played pretty well he had actually a couple of really nice kicks but i yeah. don't think that he's the solution at 15 i i it's just it's just hard for me to believe there i think that he at best for me he's he's an impact sub that can kind of go anywhere i, I don't thought, i thought so i would look um even with dth honestly i thought your back three played pretty poorly um, yeah, like DTH yeah. did some D DTH did some DTH things. Yeah, because he always does DTH things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's but a gift of being a talented with the player. with the with Hassler out. I mean, we we knew that the, this game plan really looks with the way the Eagles played. They were going to challenge the back three. Um, even like Hassler is a dynamic wing, and having him would have been better. But I'm not sure because. Parfrey and DTH um, both did not really respond well and did not win a lot of their exits that um, 
these amazing box kicks from Sean Davies. Like I ask, you know, sort of the rugby media as it were in America about Eagle nines box kicking. Um, I think I cringed a lot when Mike Petrie was box kicking this year. Um, <laughs> uh, like, so, but I think we figured it out how we were going to use box kicks, right. at least in this game. And it was all about putting pressure on the back three and not allowing you guys to win your exits, which is where all these, like the, the pace and the defense yeah. that this team, has, that the Eagles play with. And you, there wasn't, I'm not going to say there wasn't energy, but there wasn't with the speed and pace that that defense put pressure on the back three, the, the, I don't really know if it's fitness. I don't, there wasn't no, transition to like rally to establish a breakdown that would allow you to pull the pressure off it when they got like, tackled. It felt like that, that second try, which bounced off the flag, just, you could see it in DTH when it happened. And you, you know, Connor trainer messing up pretty early with that uh, dropped ball when he went to catch it. it. It just seemed like a lot of things were affecting them quickly. A lot of things went, bad quickly for Canada. And then it just kind of swept in. Interestingly, um, it's like, cause one of the things that um, Greg McWilliams stated is they were <laughs> in the first 30 minutes, we had a lot of turnovers um, that were, we just gave uh, like the Eagles just gave Canada the ball and the defense transitioned and limited yeah. you, you had no possession. Like you no, got yeah. the ball and then I, committed I errors know. and you know, the Eagles were able to make it happen and limit any, like when you had the ball inside the Eagles 22, it, it turned over like really fast. I think, I think too, like that was, that was kind of part of it is that I think, you know, like we, we can say like DTH trainer, they all had like really quiet games offensively as well from the wings, but it was just Canada's offense just seemed to be attacking in such like a simple manner that it became really easy for the Eagles to read because the ball would just essentially just like travel down the line and they would just try to go, you know, 9, 10, 12, 13 DTH. Um, and I think, you know, the USA kind of really picked up on that and were able to start like reading and because it's a super easy attacking structure to read. Um, so I don't know. It's uh, kind of one of those things too. Hopefully Canada changes that up a little bit. Um, their last – once uh, the yellow card was given out in the last 10 minutes, they kind of looked like they were sort of starting to take advantage of some different looking yeah. looks. Stuff. But there's also less guys on the field, so it's obviously easier to find a hole with that. Yeah. As well. well, hopefully, and you know, that's something that's been pointed out before uh, about mm -hmm. Canada's structure is that it's plain, it's simple. And maybe that's because there's been a lot of moving pieces, but now it's time to start, you know, getting down to business. Uh, the, you know, the next thing I wanted to talk about, guys, was, you know, Peter Nelson didn't have the best game. You know, he, he's shown flashes of of why, you know, he was kind of poached by Canada, you know, uh, but then he had really, really poor moments as well. So mm -hmm. do we think he's still the answer? Do we think he needs another chance? I'm of the mindset that uh, O'Leary needs to start. You know, I, I, you can go look back at a couple episodes uh, you know, in the last last couple, you know, few months that we've done this, and I've banged that drum. Uh, what do you guys think? Do you think it's O'Leary? Do you think it's Gordon McRory who was the fly half for uh, the repechage, or do we think we give Nelson another chance, or is it a combination of of all all of the above? So, 
Yeah, I think I have the benefit of I'm gonna, I have the benefit of speaking to P- Kingsley after the game, so sure. uh, I'm going to sort of bring that into it. I, so I went into this game not expecting a, a anything really good to happen with Peter Nelson, and then I spoke with uh, Toronto Arrows general manager uh, at the game, um, Mark Winnaker, and he's like, "No, I I'm pretty sure he's going to play well." So. I, I tempered my expectations, but I thought he was going to play bad like, right. because he hadn't played professional level rugby in some time. Um, and it basically we're talking like a year and a half's worth of Sundays. If you, if, you know, someone said a month of Sundays, but basically he hadn't played for Ulster in a while. Um, but <sighs> knowing, seeing that some guys are in the doghouse, um, and somehow, somehow don't know how to get out of the doghouse, or they're not told how to get out of the doghouse, specifically, you know, O'Leary for some reason. Although he was selected, so there is that. I was very surprised by that. I was surprised um, that, that he's on the roster still. I think that based on based on Kingsley's comments, I think the intent is that they sort of found the qualities um, in a test level 10 that he doesn't think he had previously with O'Leary and McRory. But if I had been, if I was a Canada fan before that, when that roster came out, I, I had some questions because we're talking about a guy that had just led the RFU championship in points. Like the guy's a, O'Leary's a good player. Like let's not, you know, say he's not a good player. So his inability to earn starting selection. And then you, compound that with Canada's results, right, um, has been probably made you guys uh, pull your hair out. And Gordon McRory's a scrum half. Oh, yeah. Oh, I know. So, <laughs> I mean, so I, I, I don't think Mc, like, you guys, like I, – I mean, I, I, Tyler Arjohn can play 10 if we start winning. That's fine by me. <laughs> like – that, that's that's another one. Um, so, do you think Tyler Audra needs to play five? Um, I mean, and then, what, you throw Luke Campbell in at eight. I mean, Rumble, Rumble can play eight. Um, but because the, that was one of like I would say that that was one of the reasons why we dominated that the the scrum is that yeah. our our lock pairings was a lot stronger. That's why we you know yeah. like they were able to turn the screw every yeah. time. Like it, I, I we stole like, a few scrums and it, it just shows like, that's a, that's a, that is, there's two things that go wrong. Um, <laughs> there were some technique issues I thought, um, but the technique issues weren't, were exacerbated by the strength issues. Mm-hmm. That's uh, because if you, we talk about technique issues, we talked about technique issues, especially with Glendale and, you know, their locks. And I, and one of the biggest things for me being a front rower is, Especially the, the the front rower that only is only can use one foot is uh, is is your lock pairing how strong they are because if yeah. like their technique and their strength is really what's going to stop you from from going backwards. Now the technique of your props is what's going to stop you from getting blown up. But if if they can't you know if they can't push and then your eight and your six and your seven can't push that one shoulder in on those butts. You're gonna go backwards, and we saw that. Like yeah. it was, 
I mean, we're, I, I understand the point of, you know, Arjun playing, uh, you know, number eight because he played number eight for the Chiefs most of the year. But the question is, who's stronger? And right now, I think he's probably one of the strongest guys on the team, and, and you need to put him at five. Yeah. The, yeah. The Chiefs, I think he's played Arjun at, uh, what, either four or five. He started, okay. he, started, he, started at, he started the year at eight because their eight man was injured. Yeah. And then when the eight man came back, he – Loaded to lock and spent. Right. I probably would say about two thirds of the season at at lock. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it comes down to this, and I agree with you. I, I think that uh, you know I, I would like to see what Mike Shepard can do at the test level. I mean, you know, he he looked so good at the repechage, looked so bad at the ARC. You know, looked really good with the arrows. So I don't know if there's an injury there, or they again wanted to see what Connor uh, like should give. Were we Dan? Like, were we like overly impressed with like Connor Keys during this game? Or? No, I was more impressed in, in in the game that he played against the U.S. the last time they played. This yeah. time, he didn't really offer a whole lot, and then you know, compound that on top of the scrum problems. You know, I, I yeah, I think I think if you wanted to do something, like you could probably slide. Like, I, I wouldn't be against Tyler Ardron playing Locke. Um, especially if it kind of helps someone like like what Aaron was saying, helps out the strength a little bit mm-hmm. there. Um, but yeah, like because I think like Lucas Rumble, Luke Campbell, like they can both play. Um, I'd rather have Rumble starting at eight over Campbell, but it's like I think like you kind of have that option. Olmstead Ardron uh, in your engine room might not be a, the worst thing. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. Now, if if Ardron can quickly grow as much hair, even more impressive. So Tyler Ardron, if you're watching this, which you're probably not or listening to this, start growing your beard. Oh, yeah, the, the mandatory hairiest, Locke has to have a beard, yeah. Hairiest engine in at the world. <laughs> that is my goal. <laughs> but, uh, you know, let's move on, guys, because we want to keep close to this timeline. Uh, what should Canada prepare for, with, for Fiji? And it's funny. I wrote this before that news about uh, Fiji's like lineup injection. So, like, now it's just like, what are you gonna do? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm kind of. You see that like that video on Twitter where the uh, Fijian coach was like, "We're gonna unleash some new artillery this weekend." And, I mean, I, I don't know what that means, but I, I, I hadn't. Wait, he, he said he said this. Oh my! I need to find that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this, uh, it's on like the uh, the Fijian. Uh, what's the what's it? I think at Fiji Rugby, the official. Okay, I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna unleash some artillery. Yeah, this yeah. is I'm not sure they're gonna need it. Not sure they're gonna need it. And I'm like, guys, you're ranked like what, like 12 spots higher than us in the world. You can you can save the artillery, save the artillery <laughs> for some uh, some more Tonga. Who do they play next? Tonga. Um, uh, Samoa, yeah. for like Samoa or something after. So, like, I guess the question is, you know, what can Canada do to prepare for Fiji? Uh, I, I wrote on the thing. I said, pray, um, fight like in hockey, because uh, I, you know, yeah. on the on your full of dirt, we sort of bantered about this, but I don't think in North America you can you can pinch someone's butt like that and, and get away with it. <laughs> you could slap. You could slap him and give him a good that. game, yeah. or you could, or you could just grab the tukus. You could, you could get some meat. You can't, you can't pinch. No, yeah. because That's I don't, fun. I don't think Phil Mack is gonna take being pinched well, kindly. Phil Mack has a temper. 
Like I, there's been a couple times, like either Seattle or or uh, or Canada, where he has just lost his mind on somebody. And I'm surprised he doesn't get more red cards than, or yellow cards than, than he does because he he can go a little, you know, like that's, that's you know white white a red mist kind of thing. To be to be honest though, like would that be like would that be the worst thing in the world if like the Fijian guys can get some of these Canadian lads mad? Just be like, like make like get like like get some of these guys angry, man. Like go at least go hit people. Yeah, um, you know, like if the other team's gonna have the ball the entire game. Like make them feel it. Um, you know, so I if if I don't know, maybe if they got angry, maybe that would kind of help. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I think like to prepare for Fiji. Like, I don't know. I think like following the the um, American game, it's like I think some of the stuff that we've been talking about so far, I think, you know, just maybe mix the lineup up a little bit, just to kind of, like, if it's not so much like, I mean, like Aaron was saying that it's probably going to stay somewhat similar, but, you know, maybe some of those guys that, you know, started on the bench against the U S give them the, the start, give them the starters jerseys uh, this week, like toss Quatrin in two, uh, get, put Brower and Rob, uh, Rob Brower in the number one Jersey and let's like, you know, see how they fare. Um, because you know, there's there's a lot of positions, in my opinion, that are still up for grabs, and there's really nobody like maybe other than Tyler Ardron, and that's like you could, that from the the USA game, you could say like really helped solidify their spot on this team. Um, so like I don't know, I would like to maybe even try like Peter Nelson moving back to fullback, uh, where he played a lot of Ulster and let like he does like put O'Leary at ten. Um, move uh, Nelson back to all. Just make some, like, just make some changes to show that, you I know, try to figure you, out those combinations. You throw Peter like, Nelson uh, back to 15, right? Hmm. Like, he, he he showed that he could kick the ball and play. Um, he showed that he's a good distributor. Um, he showed that he's a decent attacking player. If you, That gives you, and you put O'Leary at 10, that gives you two sort of fit uh -huh. second five eights, so two playmakers on the pitch at the same time. Yeah. And that's sort of – that's why the U.S. was able to just kick some series butt was mm. kick – like put the ball in the right part of the field and then use their set piece. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's – and with with that back line and, and, and the center with the way Jones likes to, you know, favor his guys like Lesage and Blevins, you know, if they're going to be part of the lineup, I'm not opposed to having as many – playmakers as possible you know if it comes down to you know if Hassler and Paris both get back in the lineup they're at wings throw DTH at one of the center positions which he has played before for Canada and um, I believe he played a little bit of center for the Ospreys as well um, you know you, you've got options there that I think that you can put Nelson in, and utilize that that kicking game that he he showed success with but, you know, we will see. Uh, that game is on at 1.15 a.m. in the morning on TSN. So I will be camping. So thankfully we will have cable. So let's see if I can stay up long enough to watch it. You know, we're camping thinking. with cable. You bring in a, like, bring in a satellite dude, fish? It's camping, not camping, man. That's, that's not camping. camping, but it's up at, like, my parents' trailer. They have, like, <laughs> a, a stationary trailer, and, like, our neighbors, like, it's not actually camping. I'm they lying. Call that, they call that glamping. Yeah. Yeah, it's basically glamping. I just don't have any cell service. Or man, me, so. and, uh, me and my girlfriend went camping last year, 
um, up near uh, Georgian Bay and uh, at uh, Kilbear National Park, Park or Provincial Park. Um, and uh, there was like these people in the campground to set up this like 20 foot like projector screen and were just like crushing like the Avengers on like <laughs> while they were camping. And it was just, like, it's like, okay, hey, this seems like not why you would come up here, but sure. Listen, I will take as many That's enemies. That's going to be huge. It's a 20-foot projector screen yeah. with G-verse Canada on it. I remember, like, when I was young, we used to watch, like, because you'd start camping in May and the Stanley Cup would still be on. So we'd watch the Stanley Cup around by the fire. But you know what? When I when, when you're going camping with a 10-month-old baby, you take as many amenities as you can because it gets complicated. But anyways, <laughs> we're going to move on because the one reason that we wanted Aaron on uh, was because he was in – uh, um, in San Diego for the Super Series, the women's uh, uh, mini tournament, however you want to phrase it. Um, and he was on the ground level. Uh, he watched a lot of rugby. He was able to kind of get the news while everyone else was kind of just sitting at home kind of watching it. So the first question I have for you, Aaron, is uh, what was the level of competition like for Rugby Canada and the other women's teams? Uh-huh. You know, they, they originally advertised it as the top five women's teams in the world, and, and, and it was. Like, as far as the rugby was concerned, because there was a lot of chatter, a lot of chatter about stuff. About stuff. Um, but, uh, this question is rugby. But the rugby, I mean, we're talking – I mean, they're, they're, I'm not a good player, okay? Let's just – but I would say this is some of the best – like, when you watch – when you watch these teams play and you know, this is some of the best rugby that you will be able to see. And it was, it's really cool that, you know, I can see so much of it, you know, um, because it was six hours away. So we drove out um, for two rounds uh, to watch and it, it was the five best teams in the world. Uh, that, that was true um, for the U S uh, we didn't have a coach for over a year. So we did not go on like we did not go on a tour or anything. Uh, so we're going through a whole new development cycle under Rob Kane, a cycle that Canada though uh, you guys went through. Uh, I know Francois Rottier retired after the World Cup, I believe, but you guys appointed a coach, pretty Sandro Fiorino, I believe it. Who I believe is? so. Yeah, um, was appointed pretty fast, right? Um, and went on tour and you went through your development cycle almost immediately after the world cup and had a three test tour, uh, against England where, I mean, they, uh, well, you know, you guys got beat, beat up pretty bad. Oh, but, I remember that specifically. It was, but, pretty- uh, but you capped a lot of new players cause a lot of players had retired and pulled out for rest because this tour, you know, the World Cup was in August, and this tour was in November, so there really wasn't a whole lot of yeah, whole lot of time. Um, but I, I think you you got to see some of the depth within Canada because sort of like us and a little bit of New Zealand. Uh, when when it comes to World Cup time, all of your sevens players, or at least previously for us, and you guys have put up their hands to compete uh, with the 15s team, so you sort of didn't see. Uh, you know, everything that could come, but some of those women were uh, with the, uh, and same with the United States, were, were training for the Pan American Games. Uh, but uh, you guys, you guys are well drilled, know your system, uh, a few different ball bounces here, especially in that New Zealand game uh, and that, well, and definitely in that England game. 
uh, you know, you, you create some upsets and, you know, winning by two or losing by two to England when, you know, there was just, uh, I think if that game ended two minutes earlier, you win the game by three. I think it was, what was the difference in the score at the time? So like La Rouge women, uh, or La Rouge, if we were going all French, La Rouge féminine. La Rouge Feminine uh, competed at a very high level uh, all four games. Um, there's although you finished fourth, there's really nothing to to not hang your hat on because you 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 were very physical with New Zealand, put them out of uh, you know their uh, comfort zone, and then and then with England, you you almost got it, you know. And France was also a pretty close game as well, uh, but for I mean, we're not really here to talk about the U.S., so we'll move on. Yeah, and I think the next thing, and then Derek, I want you to kind of put your, your two cents in this as well, is this was such a great event. You know, put all the chatter aside. This is something that's important for, for development of the sport, especially for women. I mean, uh, rugby in, in Canada, and I'm going to make the assumption the U.S. as well, is one of the only contact sports for women because uh, hockey doesn't have uh, legal contact. Um, so what what needs to happen, and I want your opinion from both of you guys, what needs to happen for this event to be a consistent uh, event happening? So this event um, was an extension of the last Super Series, but the last Super Series happened three years ago in, in 2016 and 2017 after our warm-up games, or I wouldn't call them warm-up games, but our spring test series um, against you guys, which was down at Chula Vista. Uh, you guys went to, I, I don't know what, I don't know what the tournament was called, but you, England, New Zealand, and Australia assembled in New Zealand for a, a warm-up tournament, sort of like the PNC is. And, and you played, uh, you know, a series of three games against, uh, you know, New England, New Zealand, and uh, Australia. And so you you sort of had that, but it wasn't the Super Series. So you, but you still had a consistent high-level tournament, which is almost impossible in North America. There's, or in, in this whole hemisphere, because the last time I want to say the last time there was another active women's 15s program. I know that Sudamerica rugby is starting to kick the tires and tell their unions to start doing stuff. But the last time there was a, uh, another women's 15s program in ran, I want to say with 1993 uh, for, I forget what team it was, but there is no other, there, there's no other women's 15s program in rugby America's North. So we don't have, the ability to have consistent competition like, uh, you know, the Six Nations do and like the the, the women's rec, uh, you know, like Spain and Portugal and all them have. Right. So we don't have the these years where we always have 10 tests like England. Uh, even, uh, even in uh, – if you go down to Australia, the, the Black Ferns were running on like six, five, six tests a year. Play, uh, play some. They don't call it a Bledisloe thing for the women between Australia, but they played Australia, you know, three times a year, and right. they play like I think Fijiana, and and then they go on tour also. So that 
but for us, the biggest thing is the biggest thing in the women's game is getting fixtures because there aren't a lot of women's 15s programs and, and those that do exist sort of out of, you know, out in parts of Europe and parts of Asia, their level is so low that you can't have them play the Blackfords. Right. Because they will just get run over. You can't. So they're so us and Australia and the Black Ferns and, and Canada, you know, we we're missing that consistent uh, competition, and that competition can't come locally because it doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Um, it's it's getting a little bit better in Oceania, um, Fiji, Samoa women. I think Tonga women. This is one of the first years that they've sort of been consistent. Uh, Papua New Guinea. They just sort of had a. Uh, a women's Oceania cup type thing, um, which right. they're trying to get going, but, um, you know, just getting fixtures for, for the U S and Canada is difficult. So let's just, let's just take that first. So if, even if you put this on a rotating basis, but I think rotating basis might take away from whoever is the host or one of the yeah. hosts. But if you put this on a rotating basis where the U S or Canada hosts it, because one of the years in the old super series, England hosted it. And why do they need to host it? Because they have the six nations and they host autumn tours. Yeah. So they don't, they don't need the super series, no. but the U S and Canada do. And part of the exercise of this whole thing is being and same with, men's tests as well is being able to have the capacity to promote uh, these games and promotion isn't just putting up billboards, but it's running the event so that you can make money at it. Because right now, guess what? France and England, they make, they, they, England women are profit generating business. France women are profit generating business uh, for the U S and Canada. Uh, I would say test rugby, not just women's test rugby is a, uh, is a is a loss leading business because we haven't developed the business side of the equation to fund yeah. our program. So I think consistent promotion along with uh, like consistency of the tournament itself. So next year, let's say Canada has it, then the next year the U.S. has it. You just keep it continuously because if you don't have it, then it's out of sight, out of mind, and that's sort of what was difficult for the U S and Canada men is that, you know, we didn't have just a tournament so that we could get developed. Cause the tournament, like the fixtures themselves are, are development opportunities for the teams, but they're right. also off field development opportunities for the unions. So you could have the games, I guess, um, on a training pitch without cameras and give it a, give it a, you know, have the points contested, but uh, then you lose the the promotion development opportunity. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's really hard to compare us, uh, you know, against tier one nations that have, uh, you know, clubs like Harlequins women. They just changed the yeah. name from Harlequins ladies. But Harlequins women, like that's a really old club. And, you know, they had last year, uh, not this last Six Nations, but they had a Six Nations test. No, it was the same weekend as the Six Nations. Uh, where the England was down in um, was down in France for a women's test uh, record of attendance, and they had over six thousand fans at the stoop setting a women's club rugby record for for attendance. And so that's the difference between our where women's rugby is here, where women's rugby is over there. Yeah. And what, what do you think, Derek, about that? You know what? You know it, it's hard to to tell people. 
when when they watch women's rugby and they say, well, it's not the same level as the men's rugby. But they, you know, it's it's like a it's a catch twenty two. It's like it's not going to get any better if we don't promote it and we don't get these girls test matches, like Aaron just said. Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I think like part of it. Uh, I think Aaron started to touch on it there. You need like more like promotion, more like advertising, things like that. Um, hopefully, like if you can find some like really great sponsors or something that are willing to you know pump more money into the specifically on the women's side of the game, that'd be yeah. Um, the- Thank you. Gordon Super Series. Yeah, it it came up. Um, I think it it came up during like the whole Nova Scotia nonsense thing there, um, where they were like a lot of the uh, great like uh, the high school girls were saying, like one of the big complaints about rugby being taken out was that there's no contact sport for them. Um, so like if you, you take away like and especially for things like that, like obviously you can't take away opportunities to play, but you know, uh, I think too, like it could come down to like just, you know, local clubs and stuff and even being like, you know, make sure like, you know, local clubs are providing an outlet for, you know, uh, women who want to play rugby to actually come and be able to do it. Hopefully, you know, a handful of them can get really good to the point where they're going to be, you know, on a national team and stuff. And just kind of like, you, you do have to start so, to some extent from like the grassroots level and just like uh, more just in general promotion and stuff of the women's game from, you know, from top to bottom could, you know, would only benefit it really. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too. And I think exposure is such a strong thing in any type of sport. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to is you need to give these girls exposure to show that it can be something that's attainable. I think that's also what pro rugby has done for rugby in general here in uh, North America. Now, last question for you uh, before we let you go, Aaron, about this is uh, who really impressed you from the Canadian team uh, and, and someone, you know, that, that we might want to keep an eye on? Uh, well, uh, I guess the first one you you might not want, might not need to keep an eye on because um, she's more, I guess, uh, we, she and I are more generationally similar than uh than some other people, um, you know, <laughs> Captain Alyssa Allery. She's been a longtime um, Canada national team player. Uh, she's, uh, you know, she's gotten it done like for a long time. Um, I remember she was playing wing the first game I saw her play uh, this time, and she was loud. Like she was communicating the entire time. And then um, the last game I saw her play, she was she was, she had. Uh, been named captain as Laura Russell had to withdraw because of an injury. Um, this that was sort of an embarrassing moment because I totally didn't read the email that um, showed me that there was a change, and I was introduced to her and I shook her hand and I said Laura, and she was like Alyssa. Uh, and I was sort of, and I I pride myself on getting this stuff pretty much correct all the time and i was just uh, it was pretty rough but she was she was really cool um she's really awesome you can i think the audio we have is up uh man it was a month ago so if you go on to earfuldirt.com somewhere you can you can find the audio um but she was really cool um and then when she moved to fullback in in the next round that i saw like she she marshaled the uh that team very well uh, around and you, you just see what she like how much experience she has uh another player i would sort of i would say fell for like she like this this is a very young woman um she's 20 years old but 
as a player, you're like, wow. Um, you wouldn't know Sophie DeGood is 20, um, just other than the fact that she just got capped, right? Um, this is something that you we don't have down in the United States in that um, she is, I would say, the, a child, uh, the progeny of two national team players. Her mother was, I believe, the first women's captain of Canada Women 15s. And then Hans de Good was a, a longtime provincial player in BC and also uh, was on La Rouge Homme 15, as, uh, as it were. So, like, you have. Um, we are we are French only by name, so don't uh, <laughs> don't don't look for us to answer. So rugby, so rugby Canada men's, like she's uh, the 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 child of two former national team players. We don't like that's sort of that's different, right? That's sort of something you only see in more mainstream sports, where the children of you know great hockey players also end up somehow becoming great athletes either in hockey or somewhere else or you know great football players their their kid becomes a great baseball player or even becomes a great football player again and plays for the same NFL team or stuff mm -hmm. like that you know um what that was that that's a really cool story to think about and this is a person like she's 20 years old she was a U20 um before the super series in both U20 selection for the women in both basketball and rugby for Canada. Hmm. That that's that's a high level athlete that you guys got. Yeah. Um, she also kicks. Yeah, which is I don't strange to watch. I to ask about that. Yeah, I saw this. Like, yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting to see uh, the number eight uh, kicking. That was success. That, that was so impressive. I've. I'm not gonna lie. Most number eights don't don't got don't got foot. Nope, I don't. I don't think any other number eights. <laughs> so uh, she so she was just like the uh, the high level high levels of skills that she has were you know very high. Uh, yeah. Um. So like I said, uh, her father and mother uh, both uh, Canadian national team players, and then Paige Ferries. Uh, she actually sort of. Bounced around, I would say, uh, collegiately. Uh, she went to three different colleges. She was in. She won a bunch of awards when she was in the Ontario University. I think she was at University of Ontario. I don't know, but she's playing. Uh, she plays for West Shore. Uh, most recently, she came out of the UVic Vikes program. Um, and on the wing, like very good player. Like so, I think you're. Your collegiate system for because women's rugby has a U sport um, designation. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. we have a small little smidge of NCAA rugby, but we don't have like full on U NCAA designation um, for you. And, and that was something when I listened to your last podcast, I wanted to touch on. But when we sort of wrap this up, but those were three really good players for you guys um, that I was really impressed with. What about you, Derek? Was there was there anybody from the, from the from the tournament that you saw that really kind of uh, impressed you with with their play from from Canada? Yeah, I think uh, I don't. I, I was kind of along the same lines as Aaron. I think like uh, like Sophie De Good was list. It was just a, like something to see. Like the number eight, like successfully and like routinely kicking goals is amazing. Um, it's a it's a pretty cool sight to see, and it's kind of pretty awesome that uh, she's Canadian too. So. That uh, hopefully that you know 
she's only 20 years old, so maybe it's uh, you know good signs for the uh, women's program going forward. That's for sure. Well, Aaron, we want to thank you very much for coming on, uh, man. We really appreciate this. If anybody wants to find his his work, uh, earfuldirt.com, uh, Aaron? Yep, yep. Uh, we'll have all, all his writing and uh, at Strobro on Twitter. He is constantly dropping all the new contracts being signed, and most mostly by NOLA, but uh, <laughs> and Earful Dirt Podcast uh, is on uh, every every yeah. provider for, for podcasts. So, um, I guess the the last thing when I when I listened to you guys and you were talking and there was chatter about this mm -hmm. about. Uh, I, Probably mostly generated by me, <laughs> but uh, we, you guys talked about U sport or NCAA designation. Well, um, so men's rugby um, outside of Ontario, it, within Ontario, it is not U sport, but men's rugby in Canada is not U sport designated. Uh, the reason why uh, Toronto Arrows players are actually able to maintain, I guess, eligibility, it, it has nothing to do with the club system uh, because it's an OUA varsity level sport. Um, they sort of fall under like the same stuff. Uh, I spoke with Mark Winokur about this and with Ontario, with university association, it was purely, it's about compensation. If players are not making over the poverty line, um, you know, it's, since it's not you sport, it sort of doesn't matter. Whereas for some reason, university club rugby coaches, and I say coaches and not um, collegiate administrators made the decision to try to be NCAA like and guess how many people at the national office work with college rugby that have to process all the paperwork every year for 20,000 plus students. There's two of them. You're like we're not set up to be like the NCAA. And so, so on the men's side, um, for some reason, coaches said hey we want to be amateur 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 and um derek did mention sort of like the pros like we're like playing in games with pros they've borrowed that into d1a and i think division one double a which is really weird don't get me wrong but uh national team level stuff which is this because our our collegiate all-american program is has actually been going a very long time it's it's like whether they played because against these other guys that were pros, because it is national team stuff. It's sort of uh, I would say the national team stuff transcends the the level of amateurism as long as uh. our players don't accept any money. And guess what? Our players were definitely not accepting any money. Mm. In fact, they had to pay for it. Wow. All right. There you go. Aaron Castor, once again, dropping the knowledge. Uh, thanks again, Aaron, for, uh, for coming and joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it, man. And uh, hopefully the rest oh, of your you. summer. Thanks for having me on, man. Um, I, I really enjoy your guys' work and uh, look forward to uh, getting more, um, listening to more scoop uh, on the Canadian side. <laughs> for we, sure, man. We'll work that. on it. We'll, we'll go to work on it right away. Yeah, after after this long weekend, this this long weekend, yeah, it's I'm not, not doing anything. But uh, thanks a lot, guys. If you want to listen to us, we are available on most podcasts, if not all of them, at this point. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Larouge Rugby. 
thanks again for listening and uh, enjoy what should be a very, very interesting game against Fiji.